0: Hi, how are you? So much to talk about today, so let's get right to it, and now's the part where I say book. Hello, this is Book, a Bible podcast for everybody, and I am Josh Wayne. On this show, we look at the content of the Judeo-Christian Bible through the lenses of history and literature, and I hope you brought your Greek lexicon and your map of the Roman Empire because we're cracking open a new collection of texts. Last time we completed our book survey of the Hebrew Bible, and today we turn our attention to the so-called New Testament, a collection of Greek texts from the early Christian movement of the first century. I want to dive right into the first book in the collection today, but first we need to say a few things about the fascinating relationship between this new collection of texts and the one we've just read together. On the surface, these two libraries, Hebrew Bible and Greek Testament, couldn't be more different. The Hebrew Bible collects a disparate array of genres and authors spanning thousands of years and multiple languages, all of which contributes to the story ancient Israel came to tell about herself, her origins, her struggles, her hopes for the future. The Greek books of the New Testament are far fewer and were all probably composed within the same century, the first one of the common era. And while the Hebrew Bible features many hundreds of subjects and protagonists, the Greek writings focus squarely on one person, Jesus of Nazareth, and his friends and followers. And so with all of this apparent discontinuity, is there any continuity between the two collections? The answer is yes, absolutely. And while there are some obvious reasons why Jewish readers do not embrace the Greek Testament, it would be a huge mistake for Christians to reciprocate and shrug off the Hebrew Bible. The reason is simple. As I think we will discover shortly, we cannot hope to understand the words, assumptions, and worldview of these first century authors without having a solid understanding of what the Jewish scriptures say. Sadly, many Western Bible readers have imagined that they could, the result being some very problematic interpretations. The Second Testament doesn't make any sense without the first. Because of the books of the New Testament were composed in and around the Near Eastern territories of the Roman Empire, all within a likely span of mere decades, we should have an easier time interpreting the literature without having to constantly check which century we're in and which of Israel's many enemies is taking over the world this week. On the other hand, our job is still to remain vigilant and attentive to the many different elements which often come crashing together in these texts. These are Jewish books through and through, but they're written in Greek by subjects of the ever-expanding and evolving Roman Empire, and they often contain political rhetoric, which we could easily mistake for something else. Keeping the balance between all of these factors will be our primary task. There's a lot more we could say, but I think we've said enough to open up the first book in the Greek Testament, the Gospel of Matthew. So what's a gospel? On a basic level, it's an announcement, a bit of news as it was broadcast in the centuries before teleprompters and hair gel. Like most of the buzzwords we'll encounter in the New Testament, it has resonance both in Jewish tradition and Roman politics. In the Hebrew Bible, we see citizens of Jerusalem waiting eagerly for a scout to appear on the horizon, bringing good news of victory in some distant battle. See a text like Isaiah 52, for example. And meanwhile, in Rome, a gospel, or evangelion in Greek, was the public proclamation of some new imperial reality, rhetorically labeled good news for the way it was sure to inspire confidence and happy feelings in the hearts of Rome's many citizens. So what is the gospel of the gospels in the New Testament? It's a Jewish guy named Jesus. What makes Jesus a top story? Well, we're going to let the authors tell us that, and in four very unique ways, they will. The Gospel of Matthew appears first in the New Testament canon, though it is most likely not the oldest of the four Gospels, and is most certainly not the earliest text in the whole collection. That honor probably would go to one of the letters of Paul, which we'll look at another day. The book is attributed to Matthew, also called Levi, a Jewish tax collector who became a follower of Jesus. If I were to describe Matthew's Gospel with one word, that word would have to be Jewish. This is a Jewish book for Jews, which builds a complicated argument about Jesus using quotes from the Hebrew Bible. Matthew's claim is simple. Jesus is Mashiach, Messiah, the anointed one, the new king that Israel has been waiting for since the rebuilding of Jerusalem centuries earlier. It's a potentially confusing business in our context, trying to understand what exactly a Messiah is and isn't. And I think there are two major reasons for this. First, the title Messiah or Christos in the Greek Testament has been rendered Christ in most of our English translations, and we're more likely to associate Christ with the second person of the Holy Trinity in church doctrine, or we just assume that it's Jesus' last name. Well, it's not really either. The second reason, related to the first, is that we have defined Messiah backwards from what the church believes about Jesus, instead of constructing it forward through Jewish expectation and hope. And as a result, we think Messiah means one who is born of a virgin, dies on a cross, and rises to save humanity. Approximate variations on these claims are indeed made about Jesus of Nazareth in the Gospels, but they are not alone the definition of Messiah. Now, there was no singular monolithic expectation in the Jewish world of Matthew's day of what a Messiah would be and do. But if you recall our journey together through the Hebrew Bible, through Psalms and the prophets in particular, You might remember that we collected little tidbits here and there, poems and prayers about a coming king or a mysterious servant or a son of man, which just means a guy, who will be empowered by Israel's God Yahweh to deliver the nation and lead it into a new season of blessing. Now, not all Jews of the first century had the same beliefs and assumptions about what Mashiach might look like. Matthew's argument through every single line of his gospel is that Jesus equals Mashiach. He is the king, the servant, and the son of man. It's there in the very first line of the book, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Three huge things are established immediately through Matthew's choice of words. Jesus is a true Jew, a son of Abraham. He is a legitimate heir to the throne. He's from the tribe of Judah, son of David, and, says Matthew, he is Mashiach. And if that's not Jewish enough, he immediately provides a Hebrew Bible-style genealogy for Jesus, which connects these dots and adds one more element that we have tended to overlook. The genealogy is highly stylized, it skips entire centuries, and is remarkable for the subversive presence of five female names, women typically being excluded from Jewish family trees. I won't read the whole thing, but it's organized neatly around four major figures. And Matthew explains it like this in verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. All right, so hold up. From Abraham to David, from David to the exile, from exile to Jesus. What is the Babylonian exile doing in a genealogy? Western Christians don't usually think to ask this question, and it's why we don't fully understand Messiah. Babylonian exile gets its own place on the Messiah's timeline because it was the cauldron in which the messianic hope was born and because most Jews in the first century believed that the curse of exile was still upon them, despite the people having been back in the land for generations. Recall the anticlimax at the end of the Hebrew scriptures where the temple was rebuilt but God still seemed like a no-show. And the continued presence of pagan overlords like Greece and Rome in Judea kept the people in exile in their own homeland as far as they were concerned. And so messianic logic works like this. 1. Yahweh establishes a covenant with Abraham to make him the head of a great family, which in turn will bless all other families on the earth. Step 2. Yahweh renews the covenant with David, promising to turn this family into an everlasting kingdom. But David and his successors repeatedly break the covenant. So, step three, Yahweh punishes Israel with exile for 500 years. But prophets pop up and announce that the curse will end and that David's throne will indeed be established forever as promised. That will be step four. And that is the messianic expectation. And Matthew's not-so-subtle claim is that Jesus represents the climax and resolution of this story. So, if a Messiah is all about restoring Israel's fortunes and getting the covenant with Yahweh back on track, where does all of this virgin birth and resurrection stuff come from? Well, we'll deal with resurrection in due time, but it just so happens that the birth of Jesus is the next item on Matthew's agenda. We covered this in some detail in podcast 19A, our so-called Christmas special from last year, but many of the points bear repeating. First, despite the absolute fervor modern Christians possess for all things Christmas, it's remarkable and unpopular to note how little space the nativity material occupies in the Bible. The story of Jesus' birth is only represented by a couple of paragraphs here in Matthew and a chapter at the beginning of Luke's Gospel. That's it. Mark and John skip right over the birth of Jesus and begin with his public prophetic campaign. Even more surprising, though, is the fact that the virgin birth is never mentioned or appealed to or alluded to in all the rest of the New Testament. Even in the Gospels that do tell the story of Jesus' birth, like Matthew, nobody points at the adult Jesus and says, look, there's the one who was born of a virgin in Bethlehem. He must be the Messiah. They never mention it. And elsewhere, in the letters of Paul, for example, we find numerous mentions of the fact that Jesus was born, but they always emphasize the natural, mortal mode of his birth – never Mary's virginity. It's surprising, but it's true. Matthew nonetheless does want to tell us about the virgin birth. He tells of an unmarried girl named Mary and her betrothed Joseph, who's visited by a messenger called an angel – but don't think wings and halo, think of the men who visited Abram and Sarai in Genesis. These are visitors with a message from God. The messenger speaks in chapter 1, verse 21. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, there are lots of big, big things going on in just this one verse. First, Jesus, or Yeshua, means he saves, or he rescues in Hebrew. And indeed, the messenger promises that this Yeshua will save people from their sins. Now, many of us are culturally conditioned to hear those words save and sin within a very specific religious paradigm, about getting saved from sin and going to heaven when you die. But before we get ahead of ourselves, let's remember the story that's being told here and its roots in the Hebrew Bible. In the Hebrew Bible, and for that matter, in first century Judea, salvation is an Exodus word. It recalls the time that Yahweh rescued his people from danger in Egypt. Now Israel is praying for a new Exodus, a rescue from exile, and more to the point, from Roman oppression. And what, according to Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the prophets, had caused Israel to be sent into exile in the first place? Her sin. The national sins of Israel need to be forgiven so that God's big plan can move forward. Enter Mashiach. Matthew says that this fulfills a verse from Isaiah about a virgin giving birth to a son and calling him Immanuel, which is God with us in Hebrew. Now, I went into great detail about this quote and how it works in that Christmas special podcast, and I recommend you give that a listen if you're interested. Uh, But I'll just summarize here. Isaiah chapter 7, the Emmanuel passage, finds the prophet warning a foolish king named Ahaz not to pay his enemies protection money and instead to trust in Yahweh. To hammer his point home, Isaiah predicts that a king will soon be born of one of the royal virgins whose job it is to give birth to new kings and that this king will trust God so much that this particular enemy will be vanquished. And the king named Hezekiah is born and the prophecy comes true within Isaiah's lifetime. Matthew invokes this story now because, in his own century, another virgin is about to give birth to another king. He believes the Messiah. Now, I know that's not a popular way of interpreting that passage, but see podcast 19a for the full argumentation. One more observation about the nativity story before we move on. Remember how, like, every story in the Hebrew Bible started out with a barren womb that was, quote, opened by Yahweh so that some important figure in Israel's history could be born? In a sense, this is the ultimate version of that story. But Yahweh's sovereignty over this birth is so absolute that he will open Mary's womb without the typical biological kickstart. And one last thing, please note that there's nothing here connecting the virgin birth with the title Son of God. Now, we're going to see that phrase soon enough, and we'll talk about what it means, but it is not a statement about Jesus' parentage. Okay, let's move on. Next up in Matthew 2 is a weird little story about wise men following a star to find the child Jesus. Now, we covered this story in greater detail in the Christmas show as well, but I'm going to recap. This is such a familiar story that we might easily lose sight of how crazy and subversive it is. Why are pagan astronomers, abominations according to the Torah, following astrological signs to find the young Messiah of Israel? The answer is pretty clear in the text, as Israel's king Herod and the priests are plotting to kill the child at the same time that the astronomers are coming. Matthew's story, like the old book of Ruth or Jonah or so many others, is a story of reversal and radical inclusion. If Israel won't welcome her new king, then foreign outsiders will step in and see the job done. Matthew is firing a warning shot here, as with the women in his genealogy. As if to say to his Jewish readers, the story I'm telling is not safe and is not intended to underwrite your assumptions or expectations. This is deeply scandalous and subversive material. Over the next few chapters, Matthew does something extraordinary with his storytelling. He presents a series of episodes about the young Jesus growing up and discovering his vocation as a prophet. But listen to this summary of chapters 2 through 4 and see if anything sounds familiar. King Herod continues his campaign to find and kill any baby messiahs, and so Jesus' parents must flee to Egypt to keep him safe. In Egypt, Joseph has a dream telling him to take his family back to the land of Judea. A prophet named John baptizes Jesus in the Jordan River. Jesus fasts in solitude in the wilderness, or the desert, where he is tempted by, quote, the devil. Jesus begins a public campaign as a rabbi and prophet, inviting exactly 12 men to become his students. Now, we're going to flesh out some of these details in a moment, but did anything strike you about those particular events in that particular order? In these three chapters, the story of Jesus looks an awful lot like the story of Israel. Flight to Egypt, a call to escape, passage through a body of water, wandering hardship in the desert, and the designation of 12 officers. Jesus is living out the story of Israel from the Exodus to the Jordan River to the wilderness to the 12 tribes of Israel. None of the other Gospels organize these same events in this same configuration. So what is Matthew's point? Well, according to the visions and hopes of Daniel, Isaiah, and the prophets, if you recall, Mashiach will have to be Israel's true representative, taking her burdens and dreams onto himself. In Matthew's logic, Jesus has to become Israel before he can rescue it. Now, a couple of clarifications about this material, and then we'll call it quits for today. First, a word about baptism. There's a lot of disagreement today in the church about exactly what baptism is, and the Bible is short on details. A prophet named John, called the Baptist, is calling Jews out into the wilderness and dunking them in water. On the one hand, this is basically a pre-existing Jewish ritual of ceremonial cleanliness. But in the details, we realize how politically controversial this movement must have been. John is inviting the children of Israel out into the desert, away from Jerusalem, to pass through the Jordan River, telling them that the kingdom of God is at hand. We'll have a lot more to say about that phrase, Kingdom of God, next time, but let's feel the full weight of what John is doing. He is reenacting the Exodus and thereby symbolically constituting a new Israel. Remember, the original Hebrews escaping from Egypt crossed through the Red Sea, but the generation which finally made it into the Promised Land had their own crossing adventure right here at the Jordan. And when Jesus shows up and subjects himself to John's baptism, he is endorsing John's new Israel project and putting himself at the center of it. Then Matthew tells us that a voice thundered out of the sky saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am pleased. This adds yet another dimension to Jesus' baptism, which is now like the public anointing and vetting of the kings of ancient Israel. Jesus is almost ready to start Messiah-ing. Almost. Finally today, What's this about Jesus in the desert being tempted by the devil? This is one of those literary hot potatoes with some dismissing it as a fairy tale, others explaining it away as a psychological experience, and still others insisting this is a literal throwdown between Jesus and Satan. If you're not familiar with the text, the devil tempts the fasting Jesus with three offers. One, turn these stones into bread. Two, throw yourself off a cliff and see if God saves you. And three, bow down and worship me. Jesus resists all three temptations by throwing quotes from Deuteronomy at the devil, and the encounter ends. It's a very strange episode which raises countless questions, but our old friend literature provides us with some very helpful insight. On close inspection, we discover that all three of the devil's temptations, or trials, have textual connections to trials faced by the Israelites when they wandered in the wilderness. Turning rocks into bread evokes the manna that the Israelites found on the ground in the desert when they were starving, an opportunity for gratitude that they passed up for more grumbling and hoarding. Putting God to the test is a direct reference to Moses warning to the desert wanderers after they demanded a display of God's rescuing power. And finally, the invitation to bow down and worship the enemy is a direct echo of the incident with the golden calf that the impatient Israelites set up for themselves in the desert. In all three cases, Jesus, Matthew's candidate for Mashiach and true Israelite, manages to overcome the very same temptations which caused his ancestors to stumble and sin those thousands of years earlier. Whatever else this story is about, it's clearly part of Matthew's Jesus as Israel agenda. If this formula wasn't clear enough, Matthew bridges his introductory material and his gospel proper with one more very familiar-sounding event— in chapter five, Jesus will go up on a mountain and start talking about laws and commandments. The new Moses is going to offer a new Torah, or at least a new way to think about Torah. And that's where we're going to start next time. This has been Book, a Bible podcast for everybody, and I have been Josh Way. If you enjoyed this podcast, I urge you to share it with your online friends and family. If you have any comments, questions, or constructive feedback, email me at book at Joshua.com. You can leave a voicemail at 801-760-3013 and I'll try to answer it here on the podcast. Read the book blog and find more content at book.joshway.com. That's it for me, Bible pals. I'll catch you next time.